0: To Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host, Lee Johnson. And as usual, I'm sitting here with my fabulous co hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles F. Peterson, and our special guest for today, the New York Times critic, A.O. Scott. Today we're going to be talking about critics and criticism, but before we get to that, I want to make sure I get everybody's drink order, find out what you guys are ranting and raving about this week. So, Charles, let's go to you first. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about?
1: Oh, I'm feeling my Midwestern roots and I just want a cold style. You know, (laughs) the nice, watery, waste of time American beer because it's just really hot. So I have a cold style, Noel, and today I'm raving because I am reading Uval Harari's new book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. (laughs) absolutely amazing. And it digs into a lot of the questions that I have philosophically about what comprises the human. So that's what I'm raving about.
0: Awesome. And you want to introduce our guest to us?
1: Today, our guest is A.O. Scott, Chief Film Critic at the New York Times and Distinguished Professor of Film Criticism at Wesleyan University. He is the author of a really fantastic book that we're going to talk about some today, Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty and Truth. Tony lives in Brooklyn and is a connoisseur of the finest bagels. (laughs) Tony, what are you having to drink today and what's your rant or your rave? Well, I'm in coastal New
2: England, a little island in the Penobscot Bay in Maine. And the preferred drink here in the summertime is a gin and tonic. (laughs) Strong one. This is not an amateur gin and tonic. It's served in a rocks glass, one to one ratio, Bombay (laughs) gin and polar tonic from a can and a wedge of lime. And, you know, three or four of those, and you'll be ready to go out sailing into a nice squall on on the bay. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of a two part rave or a two level rave, which is at the Place I'm staying here, I picked a book off the shelf, and I want to rave about the book, but also about the method of finding it, which is that, you know, we live in a time of recommendation engines and algorithms and all these different ways to get you to like different kinds of stuff. And there's something to be said for sheer randomness. This is a book and an author I never heard of. It was sitting on the shelf, put there by someone else 30 years ago in this little cottage. It's <laughs> called The Furies by Janet Hobhouse. <laughs> I had never heard of this book. I had never heard of the author. It's a memoir disguised as a novel, what we might now call autofiction, but much more delicate and witty and surprising than that label might suggest. So my rave is both The Furies by Janet Hobhouse and the practice of picking random books off of shelves in other people's houses and reading those.
1: It's the Columbus way of finding a book. (laughs) I look forward to being an unknown author sometime in the future and someone just randomly picking my book up off the shelf.
2: I bring copies of my book around and just, you know, leave them in random people's houses, hoping that that (laughs) happens. I was going to say, I'm already an unknown
3: author.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mr. Unknown, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you and raving about today?
3: I am drinking a sea breeze, please, Noel. And Tito's call us. I'll have that with Tito's. <laughs> and then just to go against Charles' constant rants against me, I am raving about the new album Mesmerism by the Tyshawn Sorry Trio. <laughs> Tyshawn Sori is a composer and a percussionist, and he's usually known for, as crazy as this sounds, doing compositions with musicians who improvise. And this album, they take on some jazz standards, and they improvise the hell out of them, and it is just a really lovely album. So Tyshawn Sori Trio, the album is mesmerism. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving?
0: I think today I'm just going to have two fingers of Benchmark and A-Rock. Just sip on while we sit here and critique the world. (laughs) Uh, But today I am also raving. I am raving about a 2020 documentary called The Reason I Jump. I don't know how I missed this when it first got released, but this is a fantastic film. It explores the world of non-speaking autistic people. It's actually based on an autobiography written by, I think, a 13 or 14 year old Japanese boy named Naoki Higashida. And one of the great things about this film is not just that it tells us so much about the experience of nonverbal autistic people from a first-person perspective, but the cinematography is amazing. It does such a good job of trying to recreate the descriptions that this boy is giving of his sensory inputs and of his difficulties managing both communication and just moving throughout the world. So I highly recommend this documentary. It's currently streaming on Netflix. It's called The Reason I Jump." All right. So today, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking with Tony about critics and criticism. But Charles, why don't you give us a sense of how this conversation is going to go?
1: Well, you know, with criticism, people think it's just as broad, sort of ambiguous thing. People think, oh, somebody has an opinion about this, and it's random. And what do critics know? And what gives them the right to say this or to say that? And I think... In this conversation, we can really begin to nail down and think very clearly about what critics and very serious criticism bring to our understanding of various practices or processes. What is the role of the critic within the larger society? I know in a previous episode, we talked about the public intellectual, and I think that's also something we can consider. Does the critic serve a social role? What are the aesthetic qualities of criticism that are available? And let's talk about some critics that we know embrace and appreciate their work. So that's where we're going with this, and Tony's going to be our guide. like to do? Because we're philosophers and we take ourselves seriously, we like to set our terms. We call that the Johnsonian question.
0: Because I'm obsessed with definitions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I want to know off the bat, what can we call criticism? It's a hard question. You know, the word criticism
2: is one of those words that has so many different meanings and definitions and so many people think different things when they hear it. Um, A lot of it Negative. You know, it's not as if criticism or critics are universally well regarded in our culture or in any other. I mean, one of the things that was fun about writing this book was discovering that all of the complaints that I was hearing from fans of movies that I had panned were the same complaints that went all the way back at least to the 18th century, if not all the way into antiquity, about critics, you know, spoiling everybody's fun and hating on the works of creative artists who just wanted to be left alone and do their own thing. So I would say that criticism. Though, like art, like creativity, originates deep within whatever makes us who we are as a species, which is a tendency to judge, to evaluate, to argue about the things that we ourselves have made to explain the world and ourselves to ourselves. I mean, if that's what art is, right, is telling a story or making a representation or doing something creative, criticism immediately follows. You can't actually have art without it because it's the discussion of what the hell was that? (laughs) What did you think of that? That was great. Criticism originates in all of those impulses, which I think are fundamentally argumentative or conversational. We're talking about this stuff. That's where it begins.
3: So if I could quote my favorite philosopher, Jeffrey Lebowski, what (laughs) separates (laughs) criticism from, well, man, that's just like your opinion, man. (laughs) Are there some guidelines or some principles of criticism? Yes. An
2: opinion is not criticism an opinion is just an opinion. And as common and as obnoxious as what you just described, what turns it into criticism is turning it into an argument, putting it into some kind of form, taking the opinion and saying, well, I need to communicate this to someone in a way that will be useful or thought provoking for them. Mm. So it has to do with the act of Communicating that opinion, justifying that opinion, explaining that opinion, anticipating objections to that opinion, and making that into something that might be useful or interesting to somebody else. So if I like a movie, that doesn't have any particular value or interest any different from anyone else's liking or disliking a movie. What makes what I do criticism, or what anybody does criticism, is the attempt to articulate and explain and
0: bring some craft to
2: it. Hmm.
0: I really like that answer because, you know, often we hear the old adage, like, everyone's a critic. (laughs) And I like the way that you're pointing out that everyone who says, I love this or I hate this is not a critic. (laughs) They're not offering a criticism. So I kind of like to ask you about the role of expertise in criticism. How important is it? You know, what is the toolbox that you think criticism needs in order to be criticism? That's a very tricky
2: question in some ways. And it can vary or has varied depending on different art forms. And one of the things that's interesting about writing about movies is that it's the democratic popular art form and everybody has access to it. Movies are not supposed to be difficult. You don't need someone to explain them to you. Whereas if you're know, if you talking about opera criticism, there's an idea that I need to know something about this before I can really understand it. Whether or not I'm a critic, even as someone going to the opera, I would like a critic or some expert to explain this to me, to tell me what does this come from, what should I be listening for, what does this mean. In movies, or let's say in television, or popular music, or food, These are all things like everybody eats, everybody goes to the movies, everybody watches TV. So it becomes a little different. It's less a matter, I think, of explanation, of bringing some expertise to bear to say, well, here is a thing that you might not understand or be able to enjoy without learning something about To saying, well, okay, here's this thing that we both saw. Here's an experience that we both had, both of us being the critic and the reader. What do we think about it? What does it say to us? What does it mean to us? And the kind of criticism that I feel like I practice is more based on that. It's like, I'm someone who saw this movie. You're someone who saw this movie. Let's talk about what we saw. Now, it's important nonetheless to know what you're talking about. Always. (laughs) You as teachers must have to deal with this all the time. So you don't necessarily have to be a credentialed expert in something, but you should know your ass from your elbow. You should know (laughs) what a tracking shot is. You should know what company released this movie. You should know some things that might be useful to your readers that you can bring to bear. And You're also always in the process of learning more. Every movie that I see, and there are now many thousands, although many more thousands that I haven't seen, but anyone that I see is continuing my education. I think there's often an idea that you acquire some body of expertise and then you start. Mm -hmm. So I have to watch you know, 10,000 movies for 10 years and then I can be a film critic. You learn as you go and part of what you're doing for your readers and for your public is educating yourself in their presence.
0: If I could just follow up on that point, especially when you're talking about what you just called democratic art forms, popular music, popular television, popular film, where presumably anybody can go see it and anyone could make an argument about the merits and demerits of it. Do you find it challenging that now... It's hard to imagine an audience because the proliferation of these art forms is so massive. There's so many films. There's so much television. There's so much music. Has it gotten harder to be a critic of popular art forms because of the mass production of them?
2: I think there are two things or more maybe going on because there is what you describe, yes, the sheer quantity of stuff to be evaluated and the fact that no individual critic can possibly account for all of it. Just in movies and television now in the age of streaming, there are literally millions of hours mm-hmm. a year being produced of new original content. And there is nobody who has those millions of hours to sort <laughs> through it all. So the idea already that the critic has sort of seen everything and is going to select the things that are the most interesting is already a fallacy. But I think there's also – and this is a controversial idea and I'm not sure how I feel about it or I go back and forth about how I feel about it. Which is the idea of the splintering of the audience. Mm-hmm. Instead of a common set of references, you know, the movies that everybody's seen, the books that we're all supposed to have read or pretend we've read, that everybody is off in their own niches and in their own finding online or in the world groups of like-minded people. So we have all of these little fandoms out there in the world? And is there any point to or need for a criticism that tries to be more general, more synthetic, more gathering people together? And, and I think that there's an interesting tension that that creates, because I think people do tend to be curious Beyond their own communities of taste or interest or fandom. So I think there still is a place for critics who aren't necessarily embedded within or loyal to one of those fandoms to be wandering out in the world, chewing on different things, like goats, and <laughs> sending out their bars. <laughs>
1: I'm always curious about the ways in which the focus of the critic or criticism being applied to production elevates it. Just the attention itself makes it criticism worthy, whereas before it may not have been considered criticism worthy.
2: That is such an interesting part of the cultural history of the 20th century that you're describing. Because within movies themselves, you know, movies started out as fairground amusements, right? Damn
1: carnies. (laughs) Yeah,
2: right. And as a very technologically driven form of entertainment. Part of it was just like, oh, my God, look at that. This train is moving. (laughs) How did they do that? And very quickly, different aesthetic and narrative and representational possibilities began to be discovered. But it was a very long time, several generations, until really the sound era, that it began to be thought that, oh, well, you could write criticism about these things, that newspapers and magazines, and then after that, more learned and elevated publications were writing about it. But it was still a very controversial notion, probably until the 1960s, at least in the United. States, that a movie, which is just like, it's just trash, it's just pop culture, it's just movies, that you would take this as seriously as you might a poem or a book or a painting or a play. I mean, a similar thing happened with popular music in the 60s and 70s. The idea that, like, this junk that you're hearing on the radio, that someone would actually write a book about this <laughs> or teach a class on it or need to read in a magazine about what it meant and what it was worth, there was a lag. And you still get that sometimes. There are still pockets of this sort of resistance to, well, why do we take this seriously? One of the negative reviews of my book said, well, sooner or later, you know, we're going to have people writing criticism about video games. And I was like, well, of course. yeah, <laughs> Right. If this is something- Something that people are interested in, and if something that people spend time and intelligence and creative labor making, then of course there should be criticism. There will be criticism. It needs to come into existence. So it can sometimes go maybe too far in the direction of seriousness and self-seriousness and academic pedantry, but it was sort of long overdue, I think, the discovery or the insistence in the middle of the 20th century that, well, This stuff is worth taking seriously, is worth thinking about, is worth writing criticism about. There's a lot of it now. There's a lot of great criticism about popular music, about film, about TV, about popular culture, about everything under the sun.
3: Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us... Just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. I
0: like that... You're distinguishing the critic from what we might call the recommender, whether that's someone who's recommending that you will like something or won't like something, because, of course, algorithms do that for us now. We don't need human critics to tell us that we are likely to like something or likely to dislike something. But I do feel like I've seen over the last decade or so a slight shift maybe in film criticism especially that there are fewer and fewer critical essays that say you know you should watch this because you will like it or you should watch this because you won't like it and many more that say exactly what you were just saying this is important for these reasons this is why you should think more about this this is how it's illuminating something that might not be immediately obvious in your like or dislike of it I'm asking you to speak as the community of critics now but do you think that that has been true, that there has been this shift away from, I'll just put it plainly, doing what algorithms are doing for us now? So I think it may be
2: less of a shift than a kind of a splitting of the functions of criticism. One of the things that we talk about a lot in the newspaper world or the world of cultural journalism is this idea of service. Mm -hmm. Critics hate it when their editors talk about service. Service, excuse me.
0: Also service. Right.
1: (laughs) Nobody wants that
2: conversation. Yeah, that's that's (laughs) when HR gets involved. It gets very ugly. (laughs) Right. They save that for the health and body (laughs) section, okay? (laughs) So critics have very mixed feelings about service because the idea is that You're serving the reader by giving them advice and recommendations. Mm. So some of the most popular things that, say, the New York Times Culture Department publishes are, here are the 25 best movies on Netflix or, you know, what to stream now. And part of that is to claim for traditional media some of the functions of the algorithm, saying the Netflix algorithm may tell you what you want to watch, but we can do a better job because we know you better. That always existed. There were always capsule reviews. There were always star systems. Something was five stars or four stars or three stars, and people would just look at those stars and not bother to read the review, or there was thumbs up and thumbs down. But I think that that has, partly for reasons of traffic and search and SEO, has migrated over to one part of the critical world where, okay, Mm. if you want recommendations, come over here. But if you want to think about something, if you want to argue about something, if you want to maybe read a review of a movie that you might not like (laughs) or that you might not (laughs) think you're going to like or that the person writing about it isn't sure how much they like. If you want all of that thinking and arguing and back and forthing and nuance, that might live somewhere else. But I think you're right. I think your insight is right that there is a little bit of a separation just of the recommendation function and the more discursive function.
0: Yeah.
3: In my experience – the power of the recommendation depends on whether or not I feel like the critic has the same taste I do. Back in the day, back in the 1900s, (laughs) you know, I would say my taste is more like Roger Ebert's than Gene Siskel. I'm a native Chicagoan, and so that's my milieu. Now I think that with the algorithm, my taste is now more determined by what I watched and what I watch a lot. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the same service that I'm looking for from a critic. And this goes back to something Lee mentioned, namely that apart from the recommendation, the job of a critic is to tell me why something is important. And one of the things I look for in that is to put it into context, either the context of the history of cinema, if it's a movie or the history of music, if it's music. But also then tell me why, for example, Beyonce's recent album is an important cultural moment that even if I'm not a fan of Beyonce, even if Beyonce's music is not to my taste, that at least I want to know about that cultural moment and maybe also that musical moment. But this context is something that I think is a really important job of a critic.
2: I think that's exactly right it's one of the reasons that criticism is not going to go away. I mean, there have been moments where people wished it would go away or thought it would go away. There was an idea a few years ago that, well, we're not going to need critics anymore because there's going to be social media and there's going to be algorithms and there's just going to be everybody going on Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes and aggregating numbers and critics are not going to be necessary. And of course, critics haven't been necessary. for. I mean, people have been going to the movies and reading books and doing all kinds of things without the benefit of criticism for a really long time. But criticism will continue to exist because people are going to be interested in exactly what you're talking about, which is to say thinking about these things more, learning more about them, wondering about the context, and also just being curious. Is there stuff out there that my algorithm isn't giving me that I should be thinking about, that I should be aware of, that I might want to try? And I think the relationship that develops between critic and readers, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Roger Ebert, who I learned a lot from about what it was to be a critic and what you owe your readers, which is that it's not a matter necessarily of Agreeing with a critic all the time because there's nobody who you agree with all the time, right? People don't really agree with themselves all the time, but sort of of trusting them of sort of saying, okay, here's a person with a point of view with a voice with a sensibility that I find interesting that I find trustworthy. In that way, it's a relationship that's not that different from any other between a writer and a reader. Mm.
1: So I'm thinking about how criticism differs from the algorithms that we encounter online. And I've been reading this book, I mentioned it earlier, sapiens, right? This short history of humankind. And what Harari argues there is that what distinguishes homo sapiens, maybe from other homo groups over the course of the past hundred thousand years, is our ability to tell stories and the ways in which those stories can maintain or create large scale social organization. And I wonder if we tell stories, then that instinct that you mentioned earlier, Tony, for people to be critical or ask questions or judge ill stories is a necessary part of our humanity. So I'm thinking about that in terms of criticism as we're discussing it, how it disrupts and is antagonistic and battles the undermining of our humanity that we see with algorithms or influencers or tastemakers or all these ways in which people's desire to ask questions and make choices for themselves are now diminished. That leads me to ask, are there elements that make someone a critic and how they connect to these larger questions?
2: There's a lot there. I mean, I think to where you started, I think absolutely that the critical impulse is as intrinsic to and maybe definitive of what our species is as these socializing primates as the creative or the narrative is. Yeah. So I haven't read Harari's book, but I like that idea that it's storytelling. I would say it's also the making of representations and art generally but I think criticism is the next thing that happens you know in a way if you're going to tell a primal story about the origin of art or of storytelling where you know paleolithic ancestors were sitting around the campfire and one of them was telling a story about the hunt or about some magical creatures or whatever and the next thing that happened was two other cave people you know said well that was interesting and the other one said well no that sucked that was ridiculous and that was the origin of criticism. (laughs) Do not recommend. And and for that reason, it's also fundamentally argumentative. There is a tension inherent in criticism because it's based in skepticism. Even approving criticism is based at looking at something from a certain angle, from an angle of skepticism, of questioning, of judgment. And I think that the implication of your question, Charles, is very important, that there are interests and forces at work in our contemporary world that would prefer us not to think, that would prefer us not to have independent skeptical judgments, that would prefer us just to passively consume whatever... The algorithm gives us to like it or not like it, to thumbs up it or thumbs down it, just to give them the data so they can make more of it or make it a little different. The importance of criticism in that world, whether practiced by professional critics or just by people at large, is, I think, to resist that or to subvert that or to undermine it. Not necessarily by hating everything that's coming through the stream or that the algorithm gives it, but by producing, to go back to Rick's idea, other context for it, alternative contexts, alternative points of view. And just to look at these things independently and skeptically, and I think that that's a very important function of criticism and is one of the reasons that people get so mad at critics so much of the time is because when there's a consensus, everyone's saying, hey, this is great, this is great, this is wonderful – and there will be some critic who's like, well, uh, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe not. And everyone is just like, shut up, let people enjoy things.
1: Yeah, I can see that like 50,000 years ago, some guy puts a hand painting on a wall and there's an asshole next to him but like, I think your perspective is off.
2: My kid could do that. <laughs> right, my kid could do that.
3: <laughs> Tony, so you walked into a bar with three philosophers and one of our main tools is argument. And I want to push back a little bit on your use of the word skepticism, but I think in favor of what your point was, because there's a way in which, as you outline the job of the critic, I could also say, well, that's also the task of the philosopher, namely that in the face of something, we say, and here I'm with Lee, the first thing is we ask, what is it? Then we start asking, why is it? Does it have to be this way? What if it were different? And so in a sense, we refuse to take things at face value. And I think the job of the critic is very similar in that, you know, I might go see Jaws in the theater and you might go see Jaws in the theater and I might come out and say, I'm Never Swimming Again, but that was a really exciting movie. And you might come out of the theater and say, that movie has fundamentally changed the way films are going to be made from here on out. I think the critic not taking it, as it were, at face value, but asking, what is it? Why is it? How does it operate? And then maybe, and I know a lot of critics, especially in plastic arts, hate this, but what does it mean? and I don't mean like what's the meaning of the painting or what's the meaning of the film but what does it mean for us? What does it mean for our society? What does it mean for culture and so on? And so I think that I agree with you that there's always this inquiring look but I'm not sure it's skeptical.
2: I mean, that's fair. And, and I know that skepticism is one of those words that means a particular thing to philosophers that it might not mean yeah. to lay people. It may be better to call it questioning or evaluative. And the relationship between criticism and philosophy is an interesting, I mean, I don't have the knowledge or the competence to, to go into all of that. But one of the books of criticism that I have found most interesting, and one of the critics who is not much read anymore, is F.R. Leavis, who was an English literary critic who taught at Cambridge. And really was one of the people who introduced the study of modern literature into the British university system. Mm. Charles, you were talking earlier about stuff that's thought to be beneath the dignity of criticism or not worth thinking about coming up to critical light. In the British universities in the 30s and 40s, the idea of studying, you know, 19th century British literature or God forbid, American literature was just so (laughs) beneath the standards of scholarship. And Leavis was the first person (laughs) to teach American literature at Oxford or Cambridge. But he has a book called The Critic as anti-philosopher, and he's partly writing (laughs) against the dominant forms of philosophy of his time, which are very abstract and very much about logic and the discovery of essences and principles. But his idea is in favor of the critic, if the critic is a philosopher, being more allied with what we might think of as pragmatism. Is not about the discovery of essences or principles, but the analysis of practices and the finding of tools.
3: Well, and following from that, one of my favorite philosophers is Walter Benjamin, who in his own day was known more as a critic, a literary critic, certainly maybe more generally a cultural critic than he was as a philosopher. And so I think there is a really close connection between at least the tools that the critic and the philosopher use And the sort of contextualization and figuring out what's this for, what's this doing, and is that a good thing? Well, I think that's exactly right. The question of
2: what is it for, what is its value, and the thing that's kind of wonderful and strange about it is that – this isn't scientific inquiry where we found a rock or a species of beetle or a distant planet. These right. are things we made. These these are human products that we're talking about. And there's something to me very beautiful and poignant about that. That this is a thing that another person or a group of people or a culture has made that it falls on us to figure out what is it? What do we do with it? Where did it come from? What is it for? Will it do us any good? And that to me is, yeah, is the work of criticism and it's endless as long as there is this Stuff that we keep making or finding or digging up from where we buried it, we're going to need to ask those questions.
0: Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast. And you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Now, back to the conversation. In the first chapter of your book, Which is titled The Critic as Artist and Vice Versa, by the way, great chapter title. (laughs) You tell a rather long story about how we came to be the kinds of beings that make things and therefore consequently judge them. And that's how you link artistry and criticism together, that one necessarily implies the other. But one of the things that you argue in that chapter is that we tend to think about art as durable but malleable Mm -hmm. and about criticism as fixed and therefore perishable. And so I really have sort of two questions. One is, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about how you think of yourself as an artist, how you think of criticism as an art, the formation of arguments about art as itself an art. But then secondly, I kind of want to push back a little bit on the sense that criticism is necessarily fixed and perishable. I think many of the criticisms that I've read from you and many other critics have a kind of durability and malleability to them because... They do make arguments that are about why something is important or why we could think about it in other ways. And that does, I think, introduce the malleability that we also find in the physical art.
2: I think that's probably true. And I think that there are works of criticism that do have that. And I certainly spend a lot of my time reading old criticism yeah, know, yeah. Or, or reading criticism about things that I don't care about or that aren't current for the quality of the argument and the expression. I mean, a couple of years ago, I wrote a long kind of anguished love letter to Susan Sontag, who's one of the great critical influences on me, mm-hmm. someone who I've agreed with about almost nothing, you know, who I sort of think often is wrong about everything and also whose taste is very different from mine. But she has just an amazing essay in Under the Sign of Saturn about the Bulgarian-German Writer Elias Canetti, and it's really about what it is to admire and appreciate and be haunted by a writer. And I think it's a great essay about reading. I mean, I'm sorry if there are Canetti fans out there. Who I'm gonna <laughs> offend, but like I could not care less. <laughs> I have tried to read various of his books, and they're just not for me. But. Her essay on him is of great value to me. So I think that what I mean more about the fixity and therefore the ephemerality of criticism has to do with its occasion. Like, here's the movie opening this weekend. Here's what I have to say about it. And what I have to say about it may not survive the moment of its saying. Or may. I mean, it may also exist in a kind of relationship alongside So people, and it does happen to me sometimes, that, you know, I'll get an email or someone will tweet and say, oh, I just saw this movie that came out 20 years ago, and I read your review of it, and I have some thoughts about that. So criticism as the companion to art, that companionship can exist between individual works of art and of criticism. But your question about the art itself, or at least the craft, one of the things that motivated this chapter was this idea that critics are failed artists, you know, that you just, you're just saying that, well, you never made a I'd like to see you do better. So what's it like
0: being the most hated profession you know, in the room, which is a pretty low bar?
2: <laughs> it's a living, what can I yeah, say? Right. But part of the whole motive for writing this book was, I just was so tired of reading articles about, you know, do critics matter? Do critics still matter? What's wrong with critics? How yeah. come there are critics? And I thought, if I just write this
1: book, all of that will stop. Right, we're just going to shut this shit down. How'd that work right. out? <laughs> and
2: somehow it had I love that confidence, Tony. (laughs) These articles still appear, you
1: know, and and, and I said,
2: well, just, just read the damn book, which I'm sure no one has ever felt that way about something they wrote before. But it is true, just to get a little bit autobiographical, that when I was growing up and I was interested in writing and also interested in movies and music and all of these things, criticism was something that was very appealing to me as a reader and also as something that I thought might be interesting to do. And You know, whether it's an art or a craft or an intellectual discipline, you have something that you're trying to say or something that you're trying to do, an idea that you have, a problem that you're addressing within the form that you've chosen. And... You want to put it out there in the world. And that's the motive of an artist and also the motive of a critic. That's where they align. And you want to do it as well as you can. And there are, I think, practices and norms and challenges within the work, within the craft context, let's say, of writing criticism.
1: There's something really beautiful about the constant dialogue between criticism and the thing that is being criticized. And it seems that at the same time that criticism can elevate something to a worthiness of attention, the craft associated with the criticism carries the criticism forward into the future. What I find really compelling is that in their particular sorts of ways, the product, say the movie or the song or the opera or the ballet, tap into enduring ideas. Mm -hmm. that people find themselves returning to, reflecting on, engaging in, and going back to this thing, this product, this creation, in order to engage those enduring values or ideas. And criticism can do that as well. Criticism can speak to those same values via the examination of the thing produced, right? If we think about, let's say, Mad Men as something worthy of consideration that speaks to fundamental questions about American character post-World War II, gender, race, all that sort of stuff. So... I think that there's something about the mobility and the constant complication of that movement between the criticism and the thing that is critiqued, and obviously, and the critic, and the artist. But Tony, don't you think this comes close to making
3: an extended argument for the point you make, namely that the critic is an artist whose medium is artworks? Yes,
2: right, whose subject is. And I think what Charles is saying is also, you know, the chapter is the critic as artist and vice versa. This is the vice versa part because art does have a critical function, absolutely, in its relation to society, in its relation to other art has a critical function. One of the things artists are doing, whether you're looking at the history of rock and roll or the history of jazz or the history of European painting is critiquing the work of other artists. That is, you listen to something or you see something and you think, first of all, I'd like to do that. And then you think, well, (laughs) maybe I could do that better or maybe I have to do that differently. So the artist is already a critic in relation to their chosen artwork. But also, as I think you're both saying, the art itself is in critical relation to the world, (laughs) to society, to human life, and sometimes needs criticism to bring that into relief, to bring that to attention. I mean, one of the critics I've been rereading recently is John Berger, who's a British critic, mostly an art critic, wrote for left-wing magazines in the 50s and 60s, and then moved to a tiny village in the French (laughs) Alps. As
3: a lefty. Yeah.
2: But he's farmed and he actually sort of lived almost as a peasant, as well as Mm -hmm. an art critic. But he has a lot of essays on canonical works of European painting, on Michelangelo, on Courbet, Mm -hmm. on Manet, where he he's really thinking about the social implications of the way that they represent reality in a way that makes you look at these paintings, whether you've studied them before or seen them in art history before, with completely new eyes. He also has an extraordinary essay called Looking at Animals, which is about going to zoos and going to farms and about what we're doing when we look at these other species and how we understand the differences between ourselves and them and the commonalities that we have between them. And, And this is criticism that is both... Helping you to see and understand and contextualize works of art, but that is also doing the primary thing that those works of art do, which is make you look at the world in a different way, from a different angle, think it could be different, it could look different, we could look at it from a different
3: angle. Yeah. Well, and I think this goes back to when Charles first mentioned this book about the centrality of storytelling. I found it interesting that you, Tony, quickly added. Representation of all kinds onto that. And this is an insight that I think is already in Aristotle's poetics, namely that art is mimesis, it is an imitation, right. but it's a kind of imitation that is not just a duplicate copy, but in imitating brings forth some. And Charles almost came close to dropping this word, but I will because I'm a metaphysician. In this repetition, <laughs> it brings forth a truth that wouldn't otherwise be visible wasn't necessarily seen in the original. And if art does that, it might not be in possession of exactly what truth it's bringing forth. And the critic then might be, in some senses, the completer of that task of bringing that truth to a different kind of visibility or appearance. Yeah, 100%.
0: So I want to ask Tony, what, if anything, is off limits? for criticism. And I can think of two kinds of examples of things that might be off limits. One is the sort of obvious one. Do I write things that valorize artists who in the real world are doing real harm? So do I write an essay that's like, I know he was an asshole, but let's talk about how great Kevin Spacey was or whomever. That's one example. Another example is something that I've actually experienced in my profession so there's a long-standing joke in academia about reviewer number 2 who's like always the asshole. One of the things that I worry about sometimes when I find myself being in that hyper negatively critical position of reviewer number 2 is no matter how important I think this insight is, no matter how important I think this negative criticism is, Is it going to do real harm to the greater area of study that's being done here that would cause me to say, no, I shouldn't write this in exactly this way, even though I think it's true and even though I think it needs to be said, right? So there are two kinds of harms, really, but I'm wondering if either of those apply in your work or if there are other things that you, in your own practice, think are off-limits.
2: Well, I want to start with the second one because I think it is a really important and ongoing issue that critics struggle with, which is the temptation to cruelty. (laughs) What are the limits of negativity or what are the appropriate occasions for being negative Mm -hmm. and how harsh do you need to be? Because it is true that you know, there is great pleasure in writing a negative <laughs> yeah. I and mean, there's great pleasure in reading one, yeah. and editors love them, and they can be funny, and you can also feel like you're so smart, because what you're doing when trashing something is demonstrating your assumed superiority to it. You know, this is a piece of trash, and I'm going to show what a smart guy I am by trashing it. What you describe is really an ethical question <laughs> of when is that necessary? When is it necessary to be negative, and in what proportion is it appropriate to be negative? And I think my experience with this is that often younger critics, including myself when I was younger, feel a lot more aggression and are able to justify, I don't think necessarily incorrectly, but are able to justify more intense performances of negativity. You know, looking back on some of my older negative reviews, I think, well, it's because. To kind of get at one of the implications of what you said, I need to defend quality and decency and good art and any bad movie (laughs) is an offense against that, that I need to avenge. And most bad movies are not that. Most bad movies are just like somebody tried to make a movie and it didn't quite work out the way they wanted to or they (laughs) – you know, whatever. There there are a lot of ways for things, as we know, to go wrong. And if you live long enough, you understand that mediocrity is really where most of human life is lived, Um, (laughs) including art and criticism so you try to be more careful and discerning in choosing your occasions. Because there are things that still do seem to me that need to be called out in the most uncompromising terms as just abusive or offensive or in some way cynical or dishonest. Those are the sins for me. When a movie just seems to be out there in the world just to take people's money Mm -hmm. and not give them much in return, that should be called out and shamed. But as far as what the boundaries are, I mean, you can't get too personal, you know what I mean, in that... If you're talking about the failure of an artist to make something that you thought was good – you don't have to call them names or assume that they're an idiot or a monster or whatever. You try to judge the thing as accurately and as fairly as you can. On the other hand, there are in the world idiots and monsters who do things. And, and make this things. Is the first part of your <laughs> question. And make things, some of which you might really like or think are important. It's not like it's a new question that just happened since Me Too, say. But it is a question that has resurfaced with a certain urgency and cogency for critics and has caused a lot of us I mean, I wrote two pieces about my own issues with Woody Allen, you know, somebody whose work just me as the kind of person I was growing up in the generation that I grew up in. He was extremely important to the formation of my own ideas, probably including my own ideas about culture and art and criticism, and to deal with how I had come to feel about him as a person, to figure out the relationship between those feelings and my history with him as an artist. It's a very hard thing to disentangle or to think about and I think in a way the only thing you can do is put it out there as honestly as you can. And what a critic has to do is not necessarily hide hide behind the authority of your presumed job or role or the objectivity or anonymity or impersonality or whatever it is. But to say, okay, I'm a person here with these thoughts and feelings and I'm going to put that out in front of you. And i come to believe increasingly just in that in general as an important aspect of critical practice and as important part of critical ethics is disclosure. You know, it's like I'm in the end not a disembodied intelligence or priest who has access to the secrets of the universe and the aesthetic rules laid down (laughs) from Olympus. I'm just a person in the world with these experiences and thoughts and prejudices trying to make sense of what's in front of me.
3: If I could go back to the sort of bad movie example you started with, and by the way recently I heard a discussion of a movie that starred Michael Caine years ago. I wish I could remember which movie, but apparently at some point someone asked him. Him, have you seen that movie it's horrible he said well no i haven't seen it i've heard a lot of people said it was horrible but i have seen the house it bought and that's gorgeous <laughs> <laughs> i think that had to be jaws 3 he has lots of oh, comments yes. of the years no jaws 4 jaws, jaws 4, four yeah. but i found your argument in your book compelling that there is in a work of art a kind of gap between the idea that gives origin to someone setting to work on a work of art and its execution. And in that gap, all sorts of mischief can happen. And (laughs) a lot of times there could be a failure to accomplish what gave rise to the setting to work to make this thing. And what I heard you saying in response to Lee was – To point out that gap is the role of the critic, yet you don't have to be nasty about that and say that Jaws 4 has ruined film and no film could ever be made because it was so horrible. And I really like this idea of the critic working in that gap between the sort of origin that sets the person to work and the actual completed execution.
2: I mean, I think one of the things that the critic in a way has at least theoretical or speculative access to, is exactly that gap. And one of the things that a critic maybe should think about is not just to take the object and say, you know, well that was terrible um or that was disappointing but to think well what was it attempting to do what might have been the thought behind it and what happened along the way and it can work the other way too i mean there are works of art that i think exceed their intentions or their ambitions or that do things that the artist may not have intended that turn out to be wonderful and i think that what the critic has to do also and the stake that the critic has to place in it and the risk that the critic has to be willing to take is being wrong I and mean, the longest chapter in this book is called how to be wrong mm-hmm. (laughs) And it says that part of the job of critics, part of the function of critics in the cultural lifespan of works of art is to be wrong. Because if you're going to judge, you're going to misjudge. And it's important to know that you're going to do that and to not be afraid of that, even if it means that you're the butt of the joke, like that you're the fool or the villain of the story. Herman Melville writes Moby Dick, and the reviews, such as they were, were full of ridicule and hostility and derision. And that was the end of Herman Melville, as far as anyone was concerned. So the joke is on all of those critics, you know, (laughs) 50, 60, 100 years later, and Moby Dick is the great 19th century American novel. But those critics, you can't just wish them away. (laughs) They're part of the story. (laughs) And their job, like the barnacles on the bottom of the whale's body, is to be there. They're part of the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, if you're going to fail, fail big, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> big.
0: But, you know, what you're describing is such a struggle, isn't it? When you're writing, when you're forming any kind of an argument that on the one hand, you don't want to use words like never or always. And you don't want to say things that are decontextualized, that aren't in the moment of history, that aren't taking into consideration society and the cultural formations and the peoples actually involved. But at the same time, you don't want to tiptoe around things. Mm. You know, you don't want to treat every subject with kid gloves. And that becomes a real struggle because the more fixed the argument is, as you say in that first chapter of your book, the more it is likely to be perishable or worse, the butt of a joke later in history. But the more malleable it is, the more... I think your readers are going to come back to you and say, but do you have a position?
2: Well, that's exactly right, because you owe them an argument. Right. It can be a nuanced argument. It can be an equivocal argument. It can express ambivalence. And this is something that I find with my students when I'm teaching criticism, because a lot of younger people don't want to say anything that could offend anybody, or not even offend, but just that could call into question the legitimacy of anyone else's opinion. (laughs) Right? Right? So, I like this, but you might not like this. You know, they get stuck in that very kind and decent and generous impulse. But
0: it assumes that disagreement is disrespect.
2: Right, Right, that disagreement is disrespect and that there's something toxic about argument. But what you describe is the whole art of it, that you want to make an argument that's as powerful and persuasive and interesting as possible, that also has as many nuances and shadings and questions and yes buts as it can in a package that will not bore people and that they will find it worth having read. And that's just a struggle that takes place at the sentence level, at the word level. That's what I wake up and do every morning <laughs> and sort of figure out, well, I have this big tangle of thoughts. I saw this complicated thing. I need to tell some people about it in some way that will make sense to them and that will be true to my own thoughts about it and so you can't spend all of your time right just wandering in the weeds or on the one hand or the other hand at a certain point you have to throw the dice
0: You know, there's this great story about Truman where he supposedly said something like, every time I talk to my economic advisors, they tell me on the one hand this, on the other hand that, and what I'm looking for is a (laughs) one-handed economist. (laughs) And I I will sometimes tell my students that I get the impulse and it's a good, it's a virtuous impulse to give both sides of an argument. And I'll sometimes tell them, I want two-handed essays with one-handed conclusions.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what I found... Interesting, Tony, about your description of what you do as a critic and your consideration of the readers. It really is a model, I think, of public discourse and something that we're lacking. I'm sure Lee and Charles would agree with this. One of the problems I have as a teacher, and particularly a teacher of philosophy, and this goes back to the opinion issue, it's not just that everyone has an opinion, but they are so self-identified with their own opinion. I think what you nicely point out is that If I'm going to put forward a judgment, then I should at least provide reasons for my judgment, give arguments for it, put it in context, even with the – well, on the one hand, on the other – But I need to give some kind of support to my argument. And I think that's really a nice model for public discourse. And I wonder, does the tenor of public discourse in the U.S. currently, does that blow back onto how the public takes critics their work, and the role of the critic?
2: I think in some ways it does just because the time we're living in is so ideologically inflamed and so polarized and so characterized by intolerance and also just an extremity of rhetoric. And that has certainly intruded into the cultural field. The idea that art and culture is walled off from any of that was... Never true, and a lot of us have never believed that. But it's certainly not true now. So it sometimes feels like you can't talk about anything, any movie, any piece of music, any piece of television, without it immediately having. Well, is this a red state thing or a blue state thing? Is this, is this you know? But I also think that at the same time, people do seek out cultural experiences and also criticism as a little bit of a respite or a buffer. Oh. I think criticism can hold up as an example of a sort of public discourse that is energetic in its arguments, passionate in its disagreements, but not just like burning down the whole goddamn house every day. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is what it feels like we're doing in every other area of discourse.
0: like, unfortunately, Noelle is giving us last call, so we've got to bounce out of here. But Tony, this has been a great conversation. You are welcome back on the podcast at any time in the future. We will definitely keep an eye on your positive reviews of terrible movies so that we can also feel vindicated <laughs> about them in the future. And your
3: positive reviews of the podcast. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> we just want to remind our listeners that you can hop on over to Patreon to give us a little bit of support. That's patreon.com backslash bar sessions. Think I'm going to call a cab since it looks like Tony has the Gin and Tonic. I'll ride with him. Anybody else want to ride?
2: <laughs> Shotgun. <laughs> I had a great time. This was just a blast. Take care.
0: Thanks, Tony. <laughs>